coronavirus is upending our lives and reshaping society. In this podcast, The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, we're hard at work producing new episodes that speak to the current challenges. But we also thought that this was a moment to go back through our archive of more than 100 conversations and bring you some of our favourites. Coronavirus threatens our mental well-being as well as our physical health. The challenge is to use this moment to the fullest, to think more deeply about where our lives are going and how we can live with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. Today we bring you a conversation with author Morris Gleitzman on writing big stories for little people. When I write about some of the some of, some of the biggest examples of the worst behaviour that, that our species is capable of, I do it always in a context where there is there are examples of the best. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to the Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. If you have children, you'll know Morris Kleitzman. One of Australia's leading authors of books for kids, he's written more than 40 tomes, including Bumface, Misery Guts, Toad Rage and Wicked. Earlier this year, he was appointed Children's Laureate for 2018 and 2019, which, as he puts it, gives him a licence to roam the land, engaging young readers in a celebration of stories and all the precious things they get from them. Born in 1953, Morris grew up in South London and moved to Australia at the age of 16. He started writing for the screen and then produced his first novel in 1987. He's energetic, engaging and life-loving, and I've come to his home in Brisbane to learn more about what makes him tick and what we can learn from a great writer about living a better life. Morris, thanks for joining me on the Good Life podcast today. It's my great pleasure. Did you always love writing? I think I did, yes. Um, I was fortunate enough to have um, a book-filled um, childhood. We didn't actually have that many books at home, but I was um, signed up at the local public library by my mum pretty early on, and I think I realised quite young that there was as much pleasure in writing as there was in reading, and I was. Um, I also realised that I'd been sort of rehearsing from even before I was capable of actually forming letters on a page. From a very young age, I had as do many kids, secret friends. And I had imaginary adventures with those secret friends. I enjoyed sort of running alternatives through my mind as certain things were happening to me that perhaps I wasn't 100% happy with, as every kid isn't when they discover the limits to their power. And, um, and when it came time in, I guess, um, what in Australia would be about year four, when we were starting to be asked to write stories at school, and characters, of course, we all knew from our reading, were vital, I realised that 
I already had some characters that I was very close to, very familiar with. I'd been on adventures with them already in my imagination, so I was sort of a step and a half towards that process. But to discover um, the pleasure and satisfaction of actually getting those secret friends out onto paper so that my, my outside friends could um, share them and enjoy them, that, that started to happen for me around the age of seven or eight, and I haven't really looked back. You also had a uh, sportsmaster, Mr Williams, who you've uh, credited as, uh, as part of uh, your, uh, your spur into becoming a writer. Tell us about him. Well, he and I had quite different worldviews, um, and we also had different um, approaches to encouraging people to expand their boundaries. And my boundary did not involve going over the touchline of any any sporting field whatsoever. <laughs> but he spotted that as an ectomorph, I, I had fairly long legs. And, and when he caught me having a kick around at lunchtime with some, some of the other boys, um, and he realised I could kick a ball a long way, I suddenly was a fullback in... Um, in one of the several several rugby teams that um, he used to force to to compete with each other, and I didn't even know what a fullback was until the first time I stood on a windy, muddy pitch, and the ball came towards me, and I caught it with such pride, which lasted about three seconds, because then I realised that my job was not to be trampled into the mud by the opposing <laughs> forwards, and this dawned on me, unforgettably just as I was being trampled in the mud by the opposing forwards. So, um, <laughs> and he didn't have, Mr Williams, he didn't have great powers of encouragement. Um, he tended to go through life as probably the, the, the full forward that he'd once been, and, and, and he tried to bludgeon you into doing what he wanted. And I was already sensing that in my future, I was going to become the advocate and the friend of a lot of characters who were on whom attempts were being made to bludgeon them to do things that, that they didn't want to do. So um, I did what I think a lot of writers do, and, and I started to sort of step back and look at my own predicament and apply some of the problem-solving or problem-occasionally um, evading strategies that, that characters do. And... Uh, and this did not, in Mr. Williams' mind, translate to a charmingly nascent literary activity. It <laughs> translated to, into disrespect and a lack of obedience. And so, he, but he was only one of a group of um, masters, as, as we called them, at, at this rather pretentious selective grammar school that, that sort of aped um, the traditions of the public school, which it most definitely wasn't. And, and it was a large part, he and his colleagues all had that sort of approach. And, um, and that was, in a, to, to a large part, why I decided at age 16 that I had pretty much had it with school and, uh, and left. Um, and I don't feel too disgruntled, though, because I think um, stories are always about problems. And I write stories about young people with problems, and those problems, not always, but do quite often come from the adults in the young people's lives. So, um, so I, I, I was blessed with with a pretty happy 
childhood at home. So I would have been a bit bereft as a, as a developing writer if I hadn't had you know, some areas of conflict in my life. So for that, I thank Chislehurst and Seed Cup Grammar School. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking generically here. I'm not talking mm. about a specific Chislehurst and Seed Cup Grammar School in um, Seed Cup, Kent, south of London. But, um, but I, I am grateful um, because in all sorts of ways, I've been able to write things that I wouldn't have been able to write if I if I hadn't had some of those experiences. So it's not exactly Angela's ashes, but there's a, a little bit of a grit and grit in the oyster that helped to make the pearls. Everyone has a bit of grit in the oyster, and we writers are allowed to talk about it a bit more than others because it's, you know, it's become part of the respectable literary process rather than just having a whinge. So when you moved to Australia, did you uh, go to school here at all, or you'd left school at 16 and you stayed left? I did resume education. I had an incredible experience. I had done a few of the sorts of jobs that one is pretty much condemned to do if one leaves school at 16. And I was working as a gopher in a clothing factory in East Sydney. And one day, a bloke I'd barely ever spoken to, we didn't really know each other at all, he was a cutter um, and he came to work one day holding a book he he came up to me and and held this book out to me and he said I've just finished reading this on the train and I think you'd like it and I was a bit stunned and I took it and he didn't know my name I didn't know his name but I hope I thanked him and I started reading it on the bus home from work and by the time I got home I decided I'd made a a seriously wrong turning in my life because not only had I left school at 16, but I pretty much stopped reading books at about the age of 14. Mm. And I've never been 100% certain why that happened. Um, I suspect it was to do with a very foolish um, sense I had that one couldn't focus on both books and girls simultaneously. Now, that is about as diametrically wrong as you could possibly get, as I discovered years later. Um, this book... Um, the Horse's Mouth by Joyce Carey, a, uh, a novel written in the first half of the 20th century, um, English writer. I was halfway through the book because there was, there was no Google in these days. So as I, I mean, I, I knew this book had, had, was, was a wonderful book and represented everything I'd somehow let slip through my fingers about reading by about page three. But, but halfway through it, it's the... Um, it's the story of a painter, of an artist, and, and we all know how difficult it is to truly capture one creative medium through another. Mm. And this utterly, I mean, I've never been able to paint or draw, so it didn't lead me in that direction. But wow, it's, it, in terms of having a sense, an absolutely visceral and, and first-hand sense of how a good painter sees the world, that... Anyway, halfway through, um, I was in love enough with this book to, I guess, go to a library and look up Joyce Carey and pretty surprised it turned out to be a bloke. And then, of course, I, I've, I realised later that he was just one of many, um, many blokes in certain creative and literary communities in the 20th century who ended up with what had previously been girls' names. Um, and that was a very... It was a small but very useful little sort of 
um, reminder that um, there are all sorts of things that one shouldn't take at face value mm. um, in in the world of literature. I said to my parents, I, I, I want to go back to where books are read and valued. I want to be among those people. I assume this means university. First, then I had to matriculate and I left work a week later and went to East Sydney Tech and did one of those courses, mostly for people who flunked years 11 and 12. Um, and, and then I had another great stroke of luck. Um, after I'd, I'd matriculated, I assumed, as my generation did in the in the early seventies, that you know an arts degree was the most interesting thing to do. Who cared what it might lead to? But there was um, I chanced on an ad in in the National Times, it might have been, for a new College of Advanced Education, which in itself was a was a, a slightly new experimental approach to vocational tertiary education. And here was the Canberra College of Advanced Education about to. Uh, have its first intake of full-time students and one of their courses was called professional writing and these days one would need to you know have 99.99 recurring in in your entrance score to, to even have a hope with a course like that then my very sort of middle of the ladder entrance score all we had to do was write a 300 word letter as to why we'd like to do the course which I did and I got in and um and that was hugely beneficial because I think one of the toughest things for the beginning writer is to, there's a sense that no one's going to take me seriously doing this, but you have to take yourself seriously. And there was enough, um, there was enough of, a, of a taking us all seriously culture in that course, even though we were trying a hand at everything from advertising, copywriting to, you know, song lyrics to short stories to, you know, a bit of screenwriting. Um, it was all of that, all of those craft things we were learning were secondary. It was, it was that sense that as, and we were mostly young people, um, and we were in a place where this endeavour was being taken seriously. And Canberra in the early 1970s is not exactly abuzz with distractions. And it so is the perfect place to focus on your life's ambition. Yeah, absolutely. But look, it, it was, there was a little bit of, of excitement. Um, I can remember standing outside the South African embassy holding placards saying, you know, honk if you hate apartheid, <laughs> um, which, you know, and that sort of approach has stood me in very good stead in later years, publicising my own books. You know, you need a short, catchy <laughs> phrase, ideally inviting some sort of participation. Honk by... if you love bumface, bum yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and then you, uh, you found your way onto a writer of the Norman Gunston show, which must have been one of the most prestigious writing gigs going in the nation at that stage. How did that happen? Well, it was, it was one of those classic Hollywood right place, right time. When I graduated, um, I, those of us who graduated from that course, journalism was, was one of the strands, and we assumed that's how we'd earn our living. But in fact, I was applying it to the ABC for some journalistic positions, and somebody whispered to me that the promotions department was actually you know, looking for somebody to help make their little ads for the, mm. for the shows. And I jumped at this because I knew I wanted to write for television, and I knew that even the things I, the experiences I had had in the course, I had not had a chance to really see how professional television worked, was produced. And this was perfect because I was in, in the studio, you know, making little 30 second spots, but using all the same equipment and, 
So it, as, a, as a writer, it was invaluable. But what was doubly invaluable was that I was meeting with most of the producers and each week to help promote their shows, including a fascinating new series called The Norman Gunson Show. And, um, and I did the promos for the first couple of seasons. As soon as I saw Gary MacDonald and that character in action, I knew I could write that character and, and, and I knew I wanted to. But a wonderful writer called Bill Harding was the initiating writer. It had grown out of the Auntie Jack show. And after a couple of years, uh, um, he decided that he wanted to go on and do some other things. And of course, I knew this because I was in the producer's office every week. So that weekend, I was at home writing and there were my scripts on the producer's desk on the Monday morning. And I like to think he came in, you know, shoulders slumping, oh, Bill's going, you know, we've got a series starting in, in six weeks. Who can write, what's this on my desk? Some <laughs> scripts by a bloke with a funny name, but who cares? They seem quite good. I'll invite him in. Um, and, that, and that was a, a life changer for me because Norman, I wrote Norman at the ABC and then at the Seven Network and then we spent a couple of years doing stage shows. So it was, it was five years of my life, but it was not only a lot of fun, a great sort of opportunity for a young man. I was 23, I think, when, when I started. A great opportunity for a young man to sort of muck up and, and, and um, do all the things that young, young people like to do with authority and all of that, pomposity. And also work with some incredible professionals. So mm. after those five years, not only had I had the best possible screenwriting education but i i'd had the opportunity as it later turned out to be to be a part of um quite a quite a significant part of of australian television history and a time one of those wonderful moments where the psyche of the nation had found a character that was just the right mix of of youthful optimism um and a little overconfidence, but with that, with that very endearing, you know, insecurity underneath. It was, it was, but but also, of course, I think Gary McDonald was about twenty eight, twenty nine um, during that time. But the character was your classic eleven year old boy, with with you know, with with bravado, with anxiety. Yes. Always, you know, never quite knowing what he doesn't know, um, and and. It took me some years to realise, once I was well-established writing characters of that age for real, that in many ways Norman had been my introduction to, mm. to that, yeah. He, I always cringe at that moment of him on the steps in the dismissal, but he seems, Norman Gunston seems a perfect fit for the Fraser era, uh, and an ideal foil for, for, for that sort of uh, period of backsliding from the excitement of uh, the, the, the early 1970s. Yes, yes, I know. It was, I, I, saw, I saw actually um, one of our clips from, from, um, from that famous day on the steps, and it reminded me, and it's still a bit mind-boggling, it was the light entertainment department at the ABC, where, as the news was coming through that morning from Canberra, that was able to commandeer the ABC's news helicopter <laughs> to take a light entertainment crew and perform it down there. Norman Gunston went by helicopter to the dismissal? He did, he did. 
So you're in the, your mid-30s when you wrote your first novel, uh, which, as I understand it, started life as a screenplay. It did. Um, thanks to the grounding in those Gunston years, I, I enjoyed another um, five or six years as a freelance screenwriter. And I was asked by the Children's Television Foundation to write a couple of um, family um, telemovies and... and the only, um, the only stricture was that they should have a main character of, you know, around 10, 11, 12 years. And that, um, that was my first experience of actually writing um, fiction with that sort of age um, protagonist. And while the first of those films was being shot, The Other Facts of Life, um, a publisher had got hold of the screenplay and thought it would make a, a good book. Um, I guess partly because the film was going to be screened on, on um, Australian TV. And, and literally while they were finishing shooting the film, I was at home um, rewriting the screenplay as a novel. Then each afternoon I'd go and look at the rushes and I would, of course, see the inevitable compromises that had to be made on each day's filming. And I'd note that no such compromises have been required at my writing desk because when it's only words, um, it's, you're, you're much more in control than, mm. than a poor beleaguered producer trying to, trying to fit things into the budget. So, um, but also I discovered that I could go into the thoughts and feelings of characters um, in the knowledge that they, that, that readers could too in an unmediated way. I mean, actors are wonderful and, 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 and I've worked with some great ones, Gary MacDonald, of course. Um, but when you're actually telling a story and dealing with the inner life, as I always like to do, um, of young characters, um, it, it's, it's particularly tricky if you're writing a story for the screen where your main characters are 10, 11, 12 years of age. Um, and I must say that I was very lucky with those two Australian television, uh, Children's Television Foundation films because they did find some remarkable young actors. But that's, that's the exception rather mm. than the rule. So for all sorts of reasons. Um, but perhaps most important, I've come to realise over the years, inevitably on the screen, you're kind of given everything you need at least at that first level of storytelling you very rarely are on the page I mean even even people who write 700 page novels and like a lot of description and a lot of um, literal exposition they can't tell you everything I don't actually tell readers very much at all I see my books almost as a series of clues and indicators because I want them as much as possible to enter all the spaces that I'm not filling because that's how the engagement I think in stories really works and for young readers although they would they would never be thinking of this in these terms as they're reading there is um, what is being reinforced to them time and again is that that sort of engagement that sharing of the responsibility of telling the story, um, the sort of intimate, empathetic connection that 
we make more readily with young characters when we have those spaces to step into rather than just you know looking at the surface of something i think these these experiences um help equip young people in all sorts of ways for the real relationships that they're going to have um and that's just the beginning of it in fact i i've um when i had to um come up with a kind of a statement of intent as children's laureate um what aspect of the whole landscape of, of kids reading did i want to sort of focus on i decided that I'd been thinking for years about how the world looks today to young people, particularly the 10, 11, 12-year-olds that I primarily write for, maybe eight, eight nine-year-olds as well. Just, just as young people are starting to think for themselves, they're starting to just step a little way away from the if they're lucky, the, the warm and caring supply of information and attitudes and worldviews that have come from the adults um, that have filled their childhood. So I think that they're seeing the world through their own eyes, laying the foundation of their own moral landscape and inevitably looking at the world and the way the world seems to be heading in terms of where it'll be in, say, another 10 or so years when they step into their adult roles. Mm. Will there be a place for me? What sort of place will it be? Will I be able to make the sort of contribution and receive the sort of things from the world that I, that I hope I'm able to? And I think, although I don't expect every 10, 11-year-old to be thinking specifically in these terms, I think the challenges that the, this, this generation will be facing, on a global scale, are probably some of the toughest challenges that that any you know global mm. community of young people have had to face. There have always been smaller groups, depending on the the geopolitical circumstances, who've had you know who've had a tough road. But this is pretty much universal now. Um, that as they take over our our human endeavour, and as as it's their turn after all those tens of thousands of generations, you know, suddenly it's on their shoulders. Um, they are really going to be helped if they, in their childhood, have developed a familiarity with the sort of creative thinking that makes good problem-solving strategies, first-hand experience of how problem-solving strategies almost never work. Right. This obstacle thing seems to be quite, quite characteristic, a lot of your writing. Uh, well, it is, it is what makes stories. I mean, if we, if we look at what stories have been for millennia, and there are cultural differences, and there are certainly, you know, in, in over the last 100, 150 years, there have been literary fashions. But if we really look at what stories have been, at least the more traditional types of stories, mm. oh, and, and young people's stories are, in many ways, very traditional, they are always about characters grappling with problems. Yes. Um, and, and when young readers go on that problem-solving journey with a young character and they do it dozens or hundreds or even thousands of times if they're voracious readers, what they are experiencing is the same inevitable developmental stages that a young character has to. Because if a young character is facing a problem bigger than they've ever faced before, way beyond their previous sphere of experience, they're going to need to do some growing and some developing, and they're going to they're need to... Um, 
get better at research to find out the true nature of the problem, develop a bit of um, brave thinking to acknowledge, yes, I really do have this problem and here's my place in it. Some interpersonal skills, because often you need to make allegiances with people that you might not normally want to be friends with to help mm. you with this particular problem. Certainly understand how your enemy's thinking. So the different, quite sophisticated aspects of um, empathy. And something I used to feel guilty about in the early days as a novelist is that when a young character has marshaled all these new skills and attributes and has a brand new problem-solving strategy to put into play, it's probably only page 30 or 40, and there's no way that the author can allow them to be successful at that stage. So it doesn't work. They've got to not fall into a pit of, of um, shame and, and self-hatred. They've got to sort of soldier on and give it another go with some more creative thinking. So, And they're going to fail again on page 70, page 110 and page 150 because the author's um, contracted to write at least 200 pages. <laughs> so, um, so some resilience has been developed by this young character by the end. And of course, if as I do, you want to write stories about some of the really big problems that mm. don't have easy and complete solutions, certainly not in perhaps one lifetime or even one, um, one shorter period of time, then as we read these stories, we're also invited to think about is there a purpose to this journey if the problem can't be totally solved at the end? And that perhaps invites us to look at how the character is at the end of the story compared to how they were at the beginning. Yes. And even if the problem is a, one that's perhaps going to take two or three generations of endeavour to really get on top of, if the character is in a better place personally, developmentally, um, than they were at the beginning of the story, and my characters always are, because if I didn't think I could do that incredibly, I wouldn't even bother to write stories about some of the problems that I like to write stories about, because um, in life individuals old and young are sometimes crushed and destroyed by problems and we and we know this from a relatively early age because we've all got you know even at age eight and nine we have a small oblong in our hand which brings us some of the harsh realities of the world but stories have a luxury i think and a and therefore a duty they they have the capacity to um to show both sides both mm. both possible sides so, I mean, you, you bind off some big topics, uh, AIDS, cancer, the Holocaust. How do you deal with topics that big without ending up being a little preachy? Well, being a little preachy is an ever-present pitfall. I mean, after 40 books, I, I'm, I have to stay as aware of that as I've ever been. Um, I was very lucky, very early in my career as a screenwriter, um, a hardened and experienced old screenwriter um, offered me one piece of advice, show, don't tell. And that is the essence of what stories are. We've, we've got plenty of other people who are very good at telling us stuff, but stories show us, and the, and the spaces I was talking about earlier, um, one of the big spaces I think that every good story has all the way, th honeycombing it all the way through, are lots of opportunities for 
the reader at whatever level is appropriate or, or attractive to them to do their own converting of showing to telling. Um, and, and so when I write about some of the some of, some of the biggest examples of the worst behaviour that, that our species is capable of, I do it always in a context where there is there are examples of the best, mm. and and the Holocaust is an example of this. It's easy um, to look at the history, and 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 I often, as I was preparing to write the first in in what's become. A series of, of six books with with one more that I'm about to start writing. When I was first researching and thinking about this, I, I often thought we should say this is drawing on your your grandparents' experience as uh, as Polish Jews who uh, moved to to Britain before, before, well before the Holocaust. That's right. Yes. Yes. Well, um, one grandfather did. Um, he left his parents and extended family behind in Krakow because at the time he was a he was a young man who just wanted to explore the world and there was no sort of glimmer of of any understanding that, that of what was going to happen two or three decades down the track. But it meant that in the 30s and 40s he was established with a family in London and um, um, and had not been back to Poland since the very beginning of the 20th century when he left and it meant that. Um, he he survived those years, as did my father, born in London, in in 1931. But the extended family left behind in Krakow didn't survive. And certainly, these books, usually referred to as the Once series, because the first book is called Once. Um, I think the personal journey that the researching of them and the writing of them has been for me, because the main character Felix. Uh, Polish Jewish boy who is 10 years old in 1942 um, in the first book and the series really well yes and um, I'm a little embarrassed but it has to be said to say that that didn't actually consciously dawn on me until after I'd written the first book but of course um, it, it, it is one version of what my father's life might have been mm had he been born in Poland. Statistically, it almost certainly wouldn't have been his life because I'm not giving too much away to say that Felix is still alive as a um, 13-year-old at the end of the war. And in fact, um, the, um, the, the last three or four books in the series take him through the months and, and even years after the war. And that makes him one of the sort of lucky, mm. I don't know what the exact figure is, but let's say 1% of Jewish children. Yes. Um, but I set out to write these stories. It was not, in fact, even wartime that I was first thinking about. It was friendship. But the more I thought about writing the sort of story I wanted to write about friendship, I thought that it would be most interesting to place a wonderful friendship between two young people in the midst of some of the most unfriendly human behaviour on the yes. largest possible scale. And, and yes, my distant family connection to that particular terrible time made it the obvious choice. So how, how do you write? Are you a first thing in the morning writer? Um, not exactly first thing in the morning. Well, it depends what you think of as first thing. I mean, I know some writers um, who, for whom that is, you know, 4.30 
Um, and, you know, if I had my way, that'd be lasting at night. But I have to lead a more um, ordered and, and, and respectable life these days. It varies a lot because with each book, even if, as I'm doing at the moment, I'm, I'm rejoining a character that I've been working with for years and, um, and, and bringing some of the new elements of a new story to, to, to familiar characters and, and other familiar elements, still there's, there's a period of, of what in, is really very undisciplined because... It's it's me trying to find a balance between my conscious work ethic and the knowledge that this book is going to be published in August or September next year, so I've got delivery deadlines, and also the knowledge that this process is partly unconscious is, and should not be intruded upon too roughly. Um, a phrase that I've noticed has caused a cynical expression on some editors' faces, but... Um, <laughs> um, but it's actually, it's a lovely time because um, I'm confident enough now after 40 books that I know it works for me and that even though some, there are some days when I might think, whoa, I officially started this book three weeks ago and I haven't actually written anything down yet and you know, I'm not quite sure still where I'm going. I know that the process does work. Once I know, um, I know the landscape physically and emotionally of the story, then I'm lucky enough to be a planner. Not every person or writer is, of course. So I, I do something that I guess I learned to do as a screenwriter, where you need to establish from day one that nothing you will ask to go on the screen will be anything but absolutely essential to the story, because it's just too expensive to be filming even you know the odd minute or, or two that you don't really need. So I do a short outline, two or three pages, and I do sometimes six or eight or ten drafts of that of that little document, um, so that I have a structural blueprint that feels absolutely right to me. But I've learned then when I start writing chapters to um, to just use it as a map um, with all the possibilities that any good journey has of a bit of you know a diversion up a side road, etc. But I've got I've got the destination, and I know how to get there. And if another even better destination comes along, well, I'm open to that possibility. That first draft, the writing of it, I'm pretty disciplined. And I, I like to, I guess, do a certain number of words a day, a thousand or something like that. But more importantly, because I've already got my map, I, there are certain places along the way that are, that are, you know, the obvious comfort stops, the obvious place for a cup of tea. And... And that's where I like to get to each night. Mm. Although sometimes I've also learned that um, sometimes it's actually good to end your day's writing at a moment of, at a place of uncertainty. I was going to ask, some people stop in the middle of a sentence so they can easily well, pick back up. I do that. Well, I also, though, sometimes, because even with all the planning in the world, inevitably every day in your writing you reach a point where you're not quite sure exactly where to go next. Um, even if it's just in your main character's response to something. Um, and I find miraculous things happen while we sleep. And many's the morning, um, as soon as my eyes open, 
I know something about that story at that moment of the story that I didn't know the night before. Mm. So mm. I've sort of learned to, to um, sometimes stop to allow sleep to make its contribution. And do you, uh, do you stop at a particular time of the day? Is there, is there a stage where you just feel as though the writing process has, uh, has exhausted you? I know, you know from various Paris Review interviews, there's well, uh, some people who think you know, lunchtime is a, is, a, is a time to stop. Uh, a morning's writing is a day's writing. Look, I'm, I'm going to be absolutely truthful here, Andrew, because I know that anybody, you know, in your line of work, you, you, you look across the house and you can tell from, you know, 20 metres if a person's telling the absolute truth or not. And we're sitting closer together than that. So I'm going to say that what I should do each morning is get up and do the, do the words, do the hours before I think about anything else. But like all writers, I'm a small business person with all of the other bits and pieces that are coming in across the desk and um, through the phone and email. Oh, that's such a relief to hear. That's great. And inevitably, despite a resolution I've made thousands of times, I sit at the desk and there's something that I just need to take care of before I can actually start writing. And <laughs> usually what happens is it's early afternoon and the one thing that will finally get me to switch the emails off is thinking... I'm going to be in big trouble from a partner who prefers to have dinner, you know, before nine o'clock at night. <laughs> if I haven't got the words done, if I haven't got what, what I want to do. So I, I will always, at about one or two, I'll say, right, I don't care now if, if, if the world explodes, I'm just going to get these words done. So, so Pam is your incentive to, uh, to, to get, get writing in that way. She is. She is. Yes. Uh, and uh, one of the things that that I've taken a pleasure in lately is uh, is reading out loud to my uh, to my kids. I'm reading uh, Great Expectations to my nine year old just before bed, and David Hunt's uh, Gert is a terrific history of Australia to my my eleven year old. Do you find uh, reading your work out loud um, plays a big part in uh, in the editing process? Um, well, it does in the sense that probably because I started out as a screenwriter and I knew that quite a lot of the words I was writing would actually be spoken, I literally hear those words in my head. Mm. I hear the rhythms and the... Um, the. So, yes, I'm doing that even as I'm writing. Um, and and that's really the thing that allows me to, to read my own books as, as audio books because I'm not a performer. But, but I know exactly how they should be read once, once the book's finished. But um, I, I very much enjoy reading, um, reading each, each book um, long before it's published to my partner. I, um, I, think reading, I think people reading out loud to each other, whatever they're reading, I mean, um, I, I don't only read my own stuff <laughs> out loud. Um, I often say to parents... Um, who are perhaps a little uncertain, they say, well, he or she is, you know, can read very well by themselves and, and sometimes they ask me to read to them. And, and I say, there are, there are few more precious gifts that we give because I think these days, um, even younger people, it's dawning on them that if they're lucky, time is a far more precious currency than, than money and... Of course, 
it takes longer to read something out loud. So it's a gift of time, it's a gift of attention. Mm. But one of the things that, that I feel very strongly about is that with if, if young people are reading the sort of things that I hope they are, the sort of things that are broadening horizons, that are, that are causing them to ask all sorts of questions of themselves about the world, there are conversations they need to have. And even though you know, my product is books, I've reached the stage now where I say the conversations are as important as the books. And I don't really regard my book as being fully read until that young reader has been able to have the conversation. Yes. Ideally, I mean, with other kids, yes, but ideally with somebody who can bring some new perspectives, a bit more worldly experience, etc. And for it to happen as part of a, of a loving relationship within a family, um, that's a wonderful thing. But also, I think, you know, grown-ups reading to each other, um, it, uh, it's something we do in this, in this home and... Um, and I've made a point of doing it, you know, um, and and it's a real, um, I think it's not only a great gift for two adults to give to each other, but it does bring with it, um, as a necessity, a slowing down. You know, there, there is being read to, I mean, I don't want to get sort of, I don't want to step outside of my my sort of field of expertise, but I will risk using the word mindful mm. because we actually have to be, I think, more mindful listening to a story than we do reading it. Because reading it, we control the process, the time, the emphasis, we stop, you know, we think about other things. But if somebody else is setting um, the, the time context, we just have to stay connected um and if i'm reading to somebody there is no pause button there's no rewind i'm you know you st you stay with me <laughs> yes yes well and on the topic of uh, conversations i have to uh, uh thank you for uh, for having conversations with my sparking conversations with my children about the uh, virtues of cane toads uh, a topic that i'm sure we wouldn't have gotten into otherwise um, so I have to ask you about your uh, your, your other sideline, which uh, I don't think uh, uh, many people would naturally associate with a uh, best-selling children's author, your wine column. That's right. I've actually written about wine, oh, for about 30 years. Not, I hasten to add, with any great expertise or depth of knowledge. It's, um, I'm really, I'm, I'm the sort of court jester. For the um, for the gourmet traveller wine magazine, I'm I'm in there on the back page, and I'm sort of I'm using wine as as a sort of jumping off point for a lot of musing and speculating about some of our funnier sort of human traits or mine anyway. Um, but I love it because I love wine. It allows me to sort of tread around the fringes of the real wine world. I mean, there's a collection of true, um, truly knowledgeable and, and experienced people write for that magazine. So um, it's lots of fun. And it has led me, my, my, my love of wine, it's led me to what I, I would have to say is an even greater love now, which is my love of tea. And people look at me slightly askance when I say that because for most people, obviously, tea comes in a little bag and you have a jiggle and it can be very refreshing and delightful. But when I say I'm a little bit more um, 
into it than that. And, and you know, Pam and I do occasionally go to China to buy some tea. People <laughs> kind of, they take a couple of steps back, but they, um, they think, oh, yeah, okay, this is, um, he's obviously um, invested far more um, time and money and passion into this thing than, you know, we think it's probably worth, but anyway. And, uh, and it's, and the great advantage to the, you know, for the, for the aging person is that while I still enjoy alcohol served responsibly, um, it's wonderful to have all of the, the, the huge spectrum of, of complex flavors with all of the cultural and, and biological and, and geographic sort of interest behind it that is the same with wine. But I can drink it all day while I'm working without any fear of ending up as a, as a sort of Dylan Thomas lookalike. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, no, no, not all of us uh, have the, uh, the constitution of uh, Ernest Hemingway. Uh, Morris, to wrap up, um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Well, I, I think I'd say what other people think of you doesn't actually matter quite as much as you might feel at the moment. Don't stress over anything to do with your hair because, you know, one day it just won't matter because you will have not a skerrick left. Um, and trust your heart as much you do as you do your brain. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that that life would be a little more comfortable that it would be a bit more sensible if we if we took a long hard look at who we were and where we came from and the way that people generally um, um, the lives they chose and and didn't um, didn't spend too much time, you know, wishing things could be different. I now realise that that was, I can see it was very much the product of, of coming from a very sort of, um, from a particular place in a very class-structured society, mm. um, mid-century um, England, and, you know, um, coming from not very far up that social ladder and, and coming from a background, not my parents specifically, because they sort of threw off the traces and, and brought us kids, you know, whinging and complaining, leaving all our friends behind to Australia, um, but which I now realise was, was a wonderful, um, you know, turning their back on, on exactly this, the sort of... Um, limited um, set of, of expectations of life mm. that but many of the people that I, that I grew up with you know it was mustn't grumble you know know your place yes. um, make the best of it well I, I think young people today have such huge access to everything that is and is possible about the world through 
um, through telecommunications and, and, and through just an assumption that it's, you know, it is, it is a global village in many ways. Um, and I hope that, that every young person can have somebody who, who is saying, you know, anything's possible. And it won't, you know, that's not going to be the product of entitlement. That's going to be the product of all those traditional things. But, you know, yes, yes, the work and the stamina and the resilience, but also, you know, some risk-taking and some optimism, which every young person has, and less, you know, it's sadly taken away from them, but, but mostly they hang on to it at least until... Um, until I'm finished with them, and uh, so you're more of an agitator and a troublemaker now than uh, than in your youth, do you think? Yeah, I was <laughs> I was an agitator and a troublemaker in my youth, but it was it it was very reactive, um, right. as opposed to you know what's possible here, and yes. you know which bars do I have to rattle to to get a bit closer. When are you most happy? I think I'm most happy um, when I'm witnessing the people I love blossom, young and old. Um, it, it's, and that's not entirely um, altruistic because I think when we see that happen, it's also a reminder to us that, um, that despite everything I've been saying about um, you know, breaking out of a self-limited mindset, that routine and adult responsibility can can you know pull us back in a bit. So um, I feel very fortunate that I get to work with young people because the you know I work in I I work in an optimism drenched um, um, place and and that's as as I get older that's that's a wonderful um, thing to to have in my life. Yeah. Do you have a particular affinity for 10, 11, 12-year-olds when you meet them, given that that's your sort of archetypal character? I think I do. Um, and I've thought about this a lot. And I think it's... I just think it's a very, very special time in all of our lives mm. because, I mean, these, these, these sort of times in our life in terms of age vary. And what, what's happening for, for one kid at 10 might have happened to another kid at eight another at 12 but generally speaking the the kids I write for and the characters that I'm writing are at that wonderful time when as I said earlier they've started to think for themselves they're really starting to to um, occupy their lives um, you know in a in a in a primary way rather than um, sort of secondhand and and for most of them it's a time of wonderful intellectual and moral and creative freedom because something has not yet started to happen. A wonderful thing when it does, the hormones haven't started to flow. We get this window of, of independent thinking and it's, I think it's the most truly independent we'll ever be because once the hormones flow, once we take on the responsibility and the desire um, to to propagate the species and for many of us to then live forevermore with the consequences of having done so. Um, I mean, the, there are so many joyful and wonderful aspects to that, but, but 
and, and many more doors and avenues open. But still, I think before it happens, we, you know, to be looking at the world with a keen sense of, of our own perceptions of right and wrong and our own perceptions of possibility, it's such an exciting time. And I love meeting individually or standing in front of a few hundred at a talk and the energy, the optimism, it, it is something that um, I think it's one of our, our great human resources. And because childhood, adult culture conspires to, to help many of us very often make the mistake of assuming that just because kids are physically smaller, that everything that goes on inside them is commensurately smaller. Well, of course it isn't. Mm. Um, and just because they have less worldly experience than us, there's a sense that somehow they are, other than all the ways that we love our own kids, they are somehow less important and less valuable. But in fact, um, if, we, if we look at you know, humanity as humanity's greatest asset, that's there there are some significant asset, assets in that time of life and without getting too romantic and saying you know we've all got something to learn from kids well i learn from kids every day and it's not necessarily that they you know teach me things although they often do about science or or mathematics that i didn't previously know it's more it's it's what i was saying just now about my work if i was going to sum it up in one phrase i'd say that my writing is always about exploring the best and the worst that we're capable of. Yes. And while kids sometimes are capable of perhaps not the very worst, but I'm not saying that kids don't, don't tread the dark side sometimes, but th they are equipped from the outset, if it hasn't been taken away from them, with some of the very best that we're capable of. In terms of optimism in terms of creative thinking in terms of the unfettered capacity to to look at a situation and say how else might this be um, and and if that's childish then I think I think we need to redefine our use of the word childish in um, in adult life you know when I when I watch broadcasts of Parliament, it's tempting to look at certain types of behaviour and say, now that is just childish. But then I stop myself and I say, no, actually, that, that other member who in a speech has just come up with a very original and even slightly outlandish set of possible problem-solving uh, problem possibilities, that's childish and that's good. We should see more of that sort of childish in Parliament. I've always loved uh, Alison Gopnik's analogy that if humanity were a firm, then kids would be the research and development arm and adults would be the production and marketing division. That's good. Uh, That's good. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that. Uh, what's the most important thing you do in life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Well, I think I spend, I spend a lot of my life inside the thoughts and feelings of young characters. And... I know how happier and, in fact, healthier I've been. I've been doing this now for nearly 30 years, but I had, just in my work, at least 10 years before that, where I was writing a whole range of things as a, as a screenwriter for hire, but they were often adult characters, and I was often supplying an adult audience with 
the sorts of stories that adults are often supplied with, which can often deal with regret and, and ennui and um, and and even if they were, you know, happier sorts of adult characters, I was not as happy and healthy a person. So, so you know, spending my working life with 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 those young characters, I also um, I also have I fortunately learned a, a long time ago that um, that one of the um, sort of thinking, daydreaming, semi-subconscious parts of my work often works better if, if I'm walking while I do it. So wherever I've lived, many different places, I need to find a walk that I don't care if there's no scenery, I don't want to cross any roads. So wherever I live, I find a block where I can do a series of right or left turns and, and it might only be in total, you know, four or five hundred um, uh, metres and, and I'll just go round and round that walk I, I particularly like doing it at night, which in Brisbane, I mean, you've in, you know, in summer you've got to do your daily walk at either 4.30 in the morning or after 8 at night. But, yeah, walking late at night where I can just lose myself, no fear of being, you know, skittled by a, by a car. Um, that, of course, you know, for somebody who, like so many of us, is somewhat alarmed to discover that it turns out that sitting down doing, you know, honourable work is actually not good for our internal organs. Well, I'm glad I've spent, you know, 40 or 60 minutes a day doing my, 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 um, my walking daydreaming. And finally, Morris, what person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Well, I think I've been very lucky. I think the people I've loved in my life have all demonstrated those qualities, even the ones I didn't really get to choose, like parents. Um, and there have been a couple of individuals. I, The whole journey of writing about the Holocaust, writing this series of books about friendship, love and friendship in the most unfriendly of times, started for me nearly 20 years ago. I was in a second-hand bookshop in Crows near Sydney, browsing and a book caught my eye because it had the word children in the title. I picked it up. It was called The King of Children by Betty Jean Lifton, the biography of a man I'd never heard of, Janusz Korczak, who I learned from the blurb on the back was a Polish-Jewish children's writer, paediatrician, broadcaster, um, who gave the last years of his life to caring for a couple of hundred, helping care for a couple of hundred Jewish orf orphans. And at the end of his life, um, was offered freedom by a Nazi officer whose own kids in Germany were reading his very popular kids' books in German translation, and he chose not to leave those kids. He knew exactly where they were all going. They were about to be put on a train, but he knew he couldn't save the kids, but he knew that he was their, their surrogate father. And if he walked away, as the German officer was inviting him to do, those kids would panic, they would try to follow him, the German soldiers would, would respond brutally, and the rest would be put on a train, and eventually they would be in a state of terror, and he decided to be with them, to do what he could in those last days and last hours. And that, to me, at the time, was the most moving and potent example of, of something I'd been, I'd been looking out for in my research and my reading, a person who's capable of doing the best that we are capable of 
in the midst of the very worst. And that, that was the seed, I think, for this series of books. I quickly connected it to, as we were saying, some, some of my family history, but, but it, was, it was that single that single idea and all the feelings attached to it of somebody who is just prepared and capable of not letting the darkness define us. And, uh, and he has become one of the few real heroes of my life. And I later discovered in Jewish communities, um, he, he's, he's widely known and widely widely thought of for just that reason. Maurice Kleitzman, uh, children's laureate, wine connoisseur and storyteller extraordinaire. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, Andrew. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest, to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.